0: Each night, the planes start coming in at 11, one after another, a massive airlift of cargo, like you'd see at wartime.
1: You can see, uh, actually, there are two runways out there. You've got one on the left and the right. You've got uh, an aircraft fixing to touch down on, uh, looks like, on the right. You've got one coming up right behind it, about 15 seconds uh, behind it, that's uh, fixing to land on the left. It's rush hour here at FedEx. The planes land every 45 seconds or so
0: for two hours. 130 jets here at the Memphis hub of Federal Express 1.2 million pieces of cargo are unloaded, slid-down ramps and conveyor belts, scanned and sorted and rerouted and rescanned by 8,500 people under lights in the middle of the night. And three hours after they start, the packages are packed onto planes to their destinations, and the airlift out of Memphis begins. It's frantic. Meanwhile, somewhere, probably sleeping, are hundreds of thousands of Americans in one big, big hurry. Get their stuff delivered to them on time in one day. In the middle of the Memphis airport, come midnight, we look like one very anxious nation. Everywhere around the Federal Express Hub, there are television screens with two times on them. One is the current time, the other is the time that the sort will go down. That is the, the time that they hope that they will stop. Taking in new packages. All the planes will be in, the packages will go in. If everything goes perfectly, good weather, no maintenance problems, the sort goes down at 207. And for every minute they go over 207, the cost per minute?
1: Uh, Last I heard it was over $100,000 a minute.
0: That's employee costs, extra flights to get packages where they'll need to go, refunds to customers whose packages were delayed because the sort went late. The guy who explained this to me, Ron Nichols, is 31, and he sits in the hot seat himself. few nights a week, he is the one who determines when the sort goes down. If a plane with 50,000 packages is going to be late, should he hold the sort? How long? In 10 minutes, this 31-year-old can cost Federal Express $1 million. He likes the pressure.
1: It's a nirvana almost around 145, you get uh, an ultimate enlightenment because you see everything. You see the big picture, exactly what's going on everywhere. And as the adrenaline kicks in and you, and you have to make, especially if you're in the hot seat, you have to make that decision as to whether or not you feel that you're gonna make a 207. It's, it is a rush. It's a rush because you, you're up against the wall. Uh, the clock is ticking. And if you make the wrong decision, uh, it's gonna cost.
0: One thing that's interesting about the delivery business is that it isn't just people, you know, who are on the top of the whole operation, like this guy, who um, thrive on the pressure and hit this kind of euphoria. Even, you know, even at the very bottom, you meet people like this. Tabitha Tate, for example. She stands in um, a row of a dozen people who do what's called the secondary sort for Belt 2. (laughs) To say, when you wander around FedEx, you're constantly, constantly telling you things like, okay, here's the secondary sort and here's where the, you know here's where the matrix begins, here's the other matrix, and, you know, all the names of the buildings are, like, you know, the hub and the super hub and the mega hub and the ultra hub. Anyway, so Tabitha Tate stands there, and she has memorized 700 FedEx destination codes. And she stands by a bin of packages, and she grabs one with her left hand and one with her right, and she barely glances at them as she, like, pitches them into 10 different destination slots faster than than you would think is humanly possible. So what do you think about while you're doing this?
2: Uh, I don't just really think about anything. I just,
3: it's it's like a flow, kind of like (laughs) feeling. You know what I'm saying? You already know where it goes. You don't have to think about it, you just go. And then I'm able to sort more than 47 packages per minute, which we're required to sort.
0: How many per minute?
3: 47. How many
0: do you sort? Stick, uh, stick. And is it sort of a macho thing where you guys will, like, you know, who's faster, who's slower? Yeah. Really?
4: <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we
0: try to compete with each other. Welcome to WBEZ Chicago. It's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, deliveries. Act one, speed. A few words from somebody who has cut you off in traffic and laughed. Act two, Who You Meet, a short story by Juno Diaz about delivering pool tables, Act 3, the world premiere of a new radio drama by David Sedaris. It's kind of a radio experiment. We gave him a sound effects record and this challenge to create a radio play using only the effects on this one record and using all the effects on the record. We hear what he came up with, Act 4, check out the package on that guy, an investigation into whether UPS men actually do have sex with the customers on their route. Act 5. An unhappy customer gets a phone call from the CEO of Federal Express and still keeps his personal boycott going of the company. Stay with us. Act 1. Speed. On the street... As a delivery worker, you know, you're mostly alone. You're moving fast from place to place. And you spend a lot of time basically in your own head. And some people, you know, play little games on the job. They set little challenges for themselves. And just like there's a euphoria for the people who are under so much pressure at Federal Express in the middle of the night, there's this euphoria to moving through traffic and racing the clock to get your stuff where it's supposed to go. Tony Starbucks delivered produce in San Francisco. At his job, he used to wake up at 2.30 every morning get stoned on the loading dock with the other drivers, and head out.
2: Everybody had their own roots, and there were, you know, sort of like, Expected times that you would finish your roots in. And part of the reasons why we had so many accidents, especially me, was because I was obsessed with doing my route faster than anybody else. And I would literally like shave, like I think I got it when I first started the route, I shaved like an hour off of, you know, so instead of doing it in three hours, I would do it in two hours. But along the way, you know, I would wipe out people's cars, I wouldn't talk to the clients, I would drop off the potatoes, and they would try to engage me in a conversation, and all I could think about is, let me just get the hell out of here and like, you know, get on my way. I would shave the time as I ran a lot of red lights. I would drive 65 miles an hour down a city street. It got to the point though where I realized that after whatever, a year of driving, that I was getting into increments of like one minute, 30 seconds. I mean, literally, I would like, like drive 100 miles an hour into the loading bay, slam on the brakes, and look at the clock. I remember one day driving along 50 miles an hour down this street, and I see it's a two-lane, one-way street, and I see in the right-hand lane, about two blocks ahead of me, like, just your nondescript white rental car, just sort of going along and, like, can't decide if they want to go right or left. And two blocks away from them, I go, you know, if I, if I really wanted to, I could slow down right now. Because I know they're going to do something really stupid. But then there was this part of me that said, well, the hell with that. I'm just, I'm on my route. I have to do what I have to do. And of course, as I got within like 20 feet of them, they decided to turn left from the right lane, right in front of me. I completely totaled their car. And my first reaction was to get out of the car. And I wanted to yell at them. It wasn't like, you know, you could have prevented this. You saw this coming. But it was like, you have now slowed me down. You've, you've screwed up my whole day. Um, and really... If it wasn't for this group of PG&E workers, electrical workers, working on the street out there, who saw this and somehow decided that I was in the right, because I guess it was like this blue-collar bonding thing, like, he's a truck driver, there's no way these people in this rent-a-car, you know, can be right, I think I would have really gotten into trouble, because I obviously was speeding like a maniac. So, you know, I sort of, like, walked through my whole job that way, except the time I ran into the Bank of America building. (laughs) ¶¶ You're in this very surreal world. I mean, nobody else is up. You're bombing down the streets. Uh, I think that's part of the problem. When all of a sudden people appear on the streets, you're like, look, I've been on the streets already for three hours. Like, just get out of my way. I remember one day... um, you you knew when the record was like you knew when the record was beatable because you would be halfway through your, your, your route and let's say you'd done it in forty-five minutes and you knew that like if you just gave it a little extra energy that you could get through the day. But I remember one day, like, okay, I was halfway through my route and there was this woman in front of me at this intersection and the light turned yellow and she like slowed down and she really could have gone through the yellow light and I could have like gone through and it would have been perfect and I, you know, had all the lights timed and uh, she slowed down and I was sitting in my truck and I lost it and I lost it to the point where before the light turned green I like let the truck, I like put it in neutral I was on a slight hill and I just sort of bumped her and then immediately, the minute I bumped her, it was like You know, it's like this huge guilt washed over me. And I'm like, okay, that was like, that was violent. Like, okay, it's one thing to be screaming and yelling in your truck, listening to like, you know, Motorhead. It's another thing to physically violate somebody like that. So then I realized, okay, you know, I crossed some line that, you know, uh, I guess you just shouldn't cross. What basically happens, the psychology, I think, of a delivery driver, is that the job is so boring. This, I mean, and it's stressful. You, there's no more stressful job than driving in traffic, especially in an urban environment. And so then it all, gets, it, all, it all gets reduced to minutia. It gets reduced to this guy who's in this little car ahead of you who, like, somehow becomes your arch enemy. And so it just creates an environment Where you you get very hostile and you just you know everybody is an inconvenience and all you want to do is get from point A to point B. Then there was the one part of the delivery job which was always you know there you are you're you're screaming you're yelling or you're just like you know you're just having these outbursts and then there's the beautiful secretary walking to work with the short skirt. It would be like this, this, like all the noise would stop and you just have like this momentary like calm and, and then all of a sudden she would disappear from view and then you were like thrust right back into, you know, the craziness of traffic and trying to get to where you're going. But that, that would always save the day, actually.
0: Tony Starbucks was interviewed by Paul Tuff and Deirdre Dolan in New York.
4: comes each day our paper in his hand he throws the paper towards our door and on our fortune lands on sunny days on rainy days our paper boy comes by he never never misses us cause if he did i'd cry now why don't we all try it together ready one two three the paper boy comes
0: each day. act two Our who you meet? There's the game that you play in your head when you work, and there are also the worlds that your job takes you into as you go house to house, office to office, like a spy, having little encounters with people along the way as a delivery person. This short story is by Juno Diaz about guys who deliver gold crowns and Bristol's and schmelkies pool tables. A warning before we start that some of the language in this story might not be suitable for younger listeners.
5: The first time we try to deliver the gold crown, the lights are on in the house, but no one lets us in. I bang on the front door, and Wayne hits the back, and I can hear our double drum shaking the windows. Right then, I have this feeling that someone is inside, laughing at us. This guy better have a good excuse, Wayne says. This is bull****. You're telling me, I say, but Wayne's the one who takes his job too seriously. He pounds some more on the door, his face jiggling. A couple of times he raps on the windows, tries squinting through the curtains. I take a more philosophical approach. I walk over to the ditch that's been cut next to the road, a drainage pipe half-filled with water, and sit down. I smoke and watch a mama duck and her three ducklings scavenge the grassy bank and then float downstream like they're on the same string. Beautiful, I say, but Wayne doesn't hear. He's banging on the door with a staple gun. At nine, Wayne picks me up at the showroom, and by then I have our route planned out. The order form tells me everything I need to know about the customers we'll be dealing with that day. If someone is just getting a 52-inch card table delivered, then you know they aren't gonna give you too much of a hassle, but they also aren't gonna tip. Those are your Spotswood, Sareville, and Perth Amboy deliveries. The pool tables go north to the rich suburbs, Livingston, Ridgewood, Bedminster. You should see our customers. Doctors, diplomats, surgeons, presidents of universities, ladies in slacks and silk tops who sport thin watches you could trade in for a car. Most of them prepare for us by laying down a path of yesterday's Washington Post from the front door to the game room. I make them pick it all up. I say, carajo, what if we slip? Do you know what 200 pounds of slate could do to a floor? The threat of property damage puts the chop chop in this step. Sometimes the customer has to jet to the store for cat food or a newspaper while we're in the middle of a job. I'm sure you'll be all right, they say. They never sound too sure. Of course, I say, just show us where the silver's at. The customers ha-ha and we ha-ha, and then they agonize over leaving, linger by the front door, trying to memorize everything they own, as if they don't know where to find us, who we work for. Once they're gone, I don't have to worry about anyone bothering me. I put down the ratchet, crack my knuckles, and explore, usually while Wayne is smoothing out the felt and doesn't need help. I take cookies from the kitchen, razors from the bathroom cabinets. Some of these houses have 20, 30 rooms. On the ride back, I try to figure out how much loot it would take to fill up all that space. I've been caught roaming around plenty of times, but you'd be surprised how quickly someone believes you're looking for the bathroom if you don't jump when you're discovered, if you just say hi. After the paperwork's been signed, I have a decision to make. If the customer has been good and tipped well, we call it even and leave. If the customer has been an ass, maybe they yelled, maybe they let their kids throw golf balls at us. I ask for the bathroom. Wayne will pretend that he hasn't seen this before. Excuse me, I'll say. I let them show me the way to the bathroom. Usually I already know. And once the door is shut, I cram bubble bath drops into my pockets and throw fist-sized wads of toilet paper into the toilet. I take a dump if I can and leave that for them. Most of the time, Wayne and I work well together. He's the driver and the money man, and I do the lifting and handle the ass. Tonight we're on our way to Lawrenceville, and he wants to talk to me about Charlene, one of the showroom girls. I haven't wanted to talk about women in months, not since the girlfriend. I really want a piler, he tells me. Maybe I'm one of the Madisons. Man, I say, cutting my eyes towards him, don't you have a wife or something? He gets quiet. Twice this year, Wayne's cheated on his wife, and I've heard it all, the before and the after. The last time his wife nearly tossed his ass out to the dogs. Neither of the women seemed worth it to me. One of them was even younger than Charlene. Wayne can be a moody guy, and this is one of those nights. He slouches in the driver's seat and swerves through traffic, riding other people's bumpers like I've told him not to do. I don't need a collision or a four-hour silent treatment, so I try to forget that I think his wife is good people and ask him if Charlene's given him any signals. He slows the truck down. Signals like you wouldn't believe, he says. ¶¶ The second time we bring the gold crown, the heavy curtain next to the door swings up like a Spanish fan. A woman stares at me, and Wayne's too busy knocking to see. Muñeca, I say. She's black and unsmiling, and then the curtain drops between us, a whisper on the glass. She had on a t-shirt that said, no problem, and didn't look like she owned the place. She looked more like the help, and couldn't have been older than twenty, and from the thinness of her face I pictured the rest of her skinny. We stared at each other for a second at the most, not enough for me to notice the shape of her ears or if her lips were chapped. I've fallen in love on Les. Later in the truck, on the way back to the showroom, Wayne mutters, This guy is dead. I mean it. The girlfriend calls sometimes, but not often. She has found herself a new boyfriend, some sangano who works at a record store. Dan is his name, and the way she says it, so painfully gringo, makes the corner of my eyes narrow. The last time I saw her in person was in Hoboken. She was with Dan and hadn't yet told me about him and hurried across the street in her high clogs to avoid me and my boys. A month before the sangano, I went to her house, a friend visiting a friend, and her parents asked me how business was as if I balanced the books or something. Business is outstanding, I said. That's really wonderful to hear, the father said. You betcha. He asked me to help him mow his lawn, and while we were dribbling gas into the tank, he offered me a job, a real one that you can build on. Utilities, he said, is nothing to be ashamed of. the boss nearly kicked our asses over the gold crown the customer an ass named Pruitt called up crazy said we were delinquent that's how the boss put it delinquent we knew that's what the customer called us because the boss doesn't use words like that look boss I said we knock like crazy I mean we knock like federal marshals like Paul Bunyan the boss wasn't having it he tore us for a good two minutes and then dismissed us For most of the night, I didn't think I had a job, so I hit the bars, fantasizing that I would bump into this cabron out with that black woman while me and my boys were cranked, but the next morning, Wayne came by with the gold crown again. Both of us had hangovers. One more time, he said. An extra delivery, no overtime. We hammered on the door for ten minutes, but no one answered. I jimmied with the window and the back door, and I could have sworn I heard her behind the patio door. I knocked hard and heard footsteps. We called the boss and told him what was what, and the boss called the house, but no one answered. Okay, the boss said. Get those card tables done. That night, as we lined up the next day's paperwork, we got a call from Pruitt, and he didn't use the word delinquent. Pruitt said he was contrite and determined and asked us to come again. His maid was sure to let us in. ¶¶ We park in front of Pruitt's house and bang on the door. I give Wayne a hard look when I see no car in the garage. Yes, I hear a voice inside say. We're the delivery guys, I yell. A bolt slides, a lock turns, the door opens. She stands in our way, wearing black shorts and a gloss of red on her lips, and I'm sweating. Come in, yes? She stands back from the door, holding it open. "'Sounds like Spanish,' Wayne says. "'No shit, I say, switching over. "'Do you remember me?' "'No,' she says. "'I look over at Wayne. "'Can you believe this? "'I can believe anything, kid. "'You heard us, didn't you? "'The other day, that was you.' "'She shrugs and opens the door wider. "'You better tell her to prop that with a chair.' "'Wayne heads back to unlock the truck. "'You hold that door,' I say.' She stays in the kitchen while we work. I can hear her humming, Wayne shaking his right hand like he scalded his fingertips. Yeah, she's fine. She has her back to me, her hand stirring around in a full sink when I walk in. I try to sound conciliatory. You're from the city? A nod. Where about? Washington Heights. Dominicana, I say. Quiqueyana. She nods. What street? I don't know the address, she says. I have it written down. My mother and my brothers live there. I'm Dominican, I say. You don't look it. I get a glass of water. We're both staring out at the muddy lawn. She says, I didn't answer the door because I wanted to make him mad. Make who mad? I want to get out of here, she says. Out of here? I'll pay you for a ride. I don't think so, I say. Aren't you from Nueva York? No? Then why did you ask the address? Why? I have family near there. Would it be that big of a problem? I say in English that she should have her boss bring her, but she stares at me blankly. I switch over. "He's a pendejo," she says, suddenly angry. I put down the glass, move next to her to wash it. She's exactly my height and smells of liquid detergent and has tiny beautiful moles on her neck. "Here," she says, Putting out her hand, but I finish it and go back to the den. Do you know what she wants us to do? I say to Wayne. Wayne is sinking the bolts into the slate with the Makita. You can't do it, he says. Why not? Kid, we have to finish this. I'll be back before you know it. A quick trip in, out. Kid, he stands up slowly. He's nearly twice as old as me. I go to the window and look out. New ginkgos stand in rows beside the driveway. A thousand years ago, when I was still in college, I learned something about them. Living fossils, unchanged since their inception millions of years ago. You tagged Charlene, didn't you? Sure did, he answers. I take the truck keys out of the toolbox. I'll be right back, I promise. She reaches the Washington Bridge without saying a word. Is this the best way? she asks. The bridge doesn't seem to impress her. It's the shortest way. That's what he said when I arrived last year. I wanted to see the countryside. There was too much rain to see anything anyway. I want to ask her if she loves her boss, but I ask her instead, How do you like the states? she swings her head across at the billboards. I'm not surprised by any of it, she says. As we cross over the bridge, I drop my hand into her lap. I leave it there, palm up, fingers slightly curled. Sometimes you just have to try, even if you know it won't work. She turns her head slowly, facing out beyond the bridge cables, out to Manhattan and the Hudson. Everything in Washington Heights is Dominican. You can't go a block without passing a Quisqueya Bakery, or a Quisqueya Supermercado, or a Hotel Quisqueya. If I were to park the truck and get out, nobody would take me for a delivery man. I could be the guy who's on the corner selling Dominican flags. I could be on my way home to my girl. When we reach her block, I ask a kid with a sag for the building, and he points at the stoop with his pinky. She gets out of the truck and straightens the front of her sweatshirt before following the line that the kid's finger has cut across the street. We oui, that they, I say. Wayne works on the boss, and a week later I'm back on probation painting the warehouse. Wayne brings me meatball sandwiches from out on the road, skinny things with a seam of cheese gumming the bread. Was it worth it, he asks me. He's watching me close. I tell him it wasn't. Did you at least get some? Hell yeah, I say. Are you sure? Why would I lie about something like that? Homegirl was an animal. I still have the teeth marks. Damn, he says. We're back on the road a week later. Buckinghams, Imperials, Gold Crowns, and dozens of card tables. I keep a copy of Pruitt's paperwork, and when the curiosity finally gets to me, I call. The first time, I get the machine. The next two times, I'm in the Bedminster area. Pruitt picks up and says yes, but on the fourth time, she answers, and the sink is running on her side of the phone, and she shuts it off when I don't say anything. Was she there, Wayne asks, in the truck? Of course she was. He hands me the map, and my fingers trace our deliveries, stitching city to city. Looks like we've gotten everything, I say. Finally, he yawns. What's first tomorrow? We won't really know until morning when I've gotten the paperwork in order, but I take guesses anyway. One of our games. It passes the time, gives us something to look forward to. I close my eyes and put my hand down on the map. So many towns, so many cities to choose from. Some places are sure bets, but more than once I've gone for the long shot and been right. You can't imagine how many times I've been right. But this time nothing comes. No magic, no nothing. It could be anywhere. I open my eyes and see that Wayne is still waiting. Edison, I say, pressing my thumb down. Edison, New Jersey.
0: Juno Diaz's story, Edison, New Jersey, is from his book, Drown. Coming up, David Sedaris tries something none of us has ever heard anybody try. The real power of the UPS uniform, and more. That's in a minute, when our program continues. This is American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme and invite a wide variety of writers, reporters, and performers to take a whack at that theme with radio monologues, documentaries, short fiction, and occasionally short radio dramas. Our program today is called Deliveries, About Deliveries, and we've arrived at Act Three, world premiere. David Sedaris is a frequent contributor to our program, author of the new book of stories called Naked, an occasional commentator in NPR's Morning Edition. And a few weeks ago, we gave him this assignment to write a radio play using only the sound effects from one sound effects record. And he had to use every sound on the record somewhere in the drama. He accepted the challenge. We chose as our sound effects record this volume I hold in my hand. It is called Ultimate Sound Effects... Over One Hour. I guess that is a part of the title. Volume 5, CD 8093-2 composes the label. Uh, the effects on here, just so you can follow the challenge that faced the playwright, in order, on the CD anyway, are horse-drawn carriage on street, swamp noises, time bomb through airport security. You know, you see that on a CD record and you wonder, how much call is there for something like this in our radio production world? Steam trains at, t- at station, exterior airport, construction site, bowling alley, jet takes off, Native Americans dance, busy harbor, animals at Riverside, big cats, old clock chimes, car accident, five-minute war, barnyard sounds, workshop, aviary, and the sound of a beating human heart. Um, we asked uh, David also to keep the play short. <laughs> possibly the hardest part of the assignment when we were done giving him uh, I read him you know the list of uh, effects over the phone and uh, and he took as part of the assignment he decided to do them in exactly the order that they appear on the CD here is the world premiere of the radio play that he created
6: I remember it was a late Sunday afternoon and Cliff and I were taking a handsome cab through the heart of Good Times Square.
7: That's the charm of Empire City. You hold out your hand and hail a horse-drawn carriage, just like in the days of yore.
6: We like to drive in every weekend from Hasselbrook to take in the sights.
7: I like it for the volatile crowds and the smell of roasting pennies.
6: And I like it for the salt. Salt in those big, splashy shows on the Great White Way. We
7: sure do love those shows. I remembered we'd just come from a matinee performance of Palsy, that new musical about the Medicare debates. Oh,
6: it was spectacular. The costumes and the dancing. The chorus
7: line on their walkers with the IV stands. God, I loved that show.
6: We bought a few dozen scalding pretzels from the passing snack cart, settled into the back seat of our horse-drawn carriage, and had just started rehashing the show when that witch appeared. She
7: wasn't a witch, Linda. She was a tattoo artist. A
6: tattoo artist with a particularly offensive message etched into her forehead.
7: The strange thing, the unusual thing, was that she knocked on the door of our carriage and handed us a simple plastic pail containing a human heart. Now that was an eye-opener.
6: The girl said that it had been her mother's heart and that she desperately needed to have it delivered to Clydesdale where her brother was awaiting a transplant. And Clydesdale, that was out of state, not far from Hasselbrook.
7: She'd intended to deliver it herself, but then something came up. A date.
6: She'd been invited to a beer blast by a man with a Caesar haircut. I like a Caesar.
7: Me? I thought it was some sort of scam. I've read about things like this in the papers. A couple comes to town to take in a show, and the next thing you know, someone's handing them an organ and picking all the salt off their pretzels. It's the oldest story in the book.
6: But then she reached into her pocket and pulled out two tickets for sublet, and what could we say?
7: That's the hottest show in town. Nobody gets tickets to that.
6: So we said, sure we'll deliver your mother's heart to your sick brother in Clydesdale.
7: Because it seemed like the right thing to do. A matinee performance with front row seats.
6: Off we went. Our rascal was in the parking lot ten blocks away, but the traffic was an absolute tangle, and it would have taken hours to reach it.
7: I had the carriage driver take us to the river, where we could have one of those medical waste barges carry us to the other side.
6: The view was remarkable.
7: The sky, the color of a freshly minted nickel.
6: We were in heaven, absolute heaven, until the barge driver let us off in... what do you call a place like that?
7: A swamp. I'd call it a swamp.
6: I lost my good possum-skin evening pumps in the muck, but what did I care? I just grabbed the heart, flagging down a passing car, and demanded a ride to the airport. Even barefoot, I'm quick on my feet.
7: I'll give you that. We arrived at the terminal where we booked a commuter flight to Clydesdale. A quick bag of salted onion skins in the captain's lounge, and then, wouldn't you know it...
6: A bomb. A bomb in the airport metal detector. All flights cancelled. So
7: my mind was racing. But
6: not as fast as mine. Taxi. I hailed a cab to the nearest train station.
7: It wasn't that far of a drive, but wouldn't you know it? The son-of-a-bitching G.D. train pulled out just as we were buying a sack of salted pork rinds.
6: You were buying the pork rinds.
7: All right, but I got them for the both of us.
6: And paid with a large bill, the big man. You just had to flash your money around, didn't you?
7: It's their job to make change. It's not my fault the guy couldn't break a 50. You were trying to
6: impress him, is what you were trying to do.
7: We were having this exact same argument when I noticed... I noticed a crew of construction workers building a ferris wheel at the far side of the station.
6: He noticed them only because they noticed me. I'm an absolute magnet for catcalls. That's the curse of being an attractive woman.
7: I approached the forklift operator, a man named Carl, and we had a little talk, mano to mano.
6: Oh, I like that, Carl.
7: After explaining the business with a heart, he offered us the services of his brother, who worked not far away in one of the neighboring bergs. So we get to this place where Carl's brother works, and it turns out that the guy polishes balls. In a bowling alley. Pins and needles, it was called, because there's a main floor and then an observation deck selling wool and sweater patterns. I liked the feel of the place, and the fries were great.
6: What wasn't so great was that Carl's brother had been laid off just ten minutes before we arrived. He'd taken his car and headed west, just like that.
7: Were we in a bind or what? The assistant manager of the snack bar offered us a lift as far as the neighboring airfield, and I took her up on it because... A
6: trollop is what she was. Hey, now. Enough blush on her cheeks to cover the moon. And that business about the airfield? It wasn't an airfield, but a... Military base. You saw all those soldiers prancing behind that barbed wire fence. The girl dropped us off and drove away laughing because that's what whores do. She was a prostitute. She was a trollop.
7: Call her what you will, but if it wasn't for her, we never would have met those Indians. That's what they were. They were Indians.
6: Native Americans.
7: Entire tribe of wannabes performing a ceremonial dance upon their ancient burial ground, not far from the runway.
6: It was like seeing a big, splashy musical, except that there were no ushers or comfortable seats.
7: Following their little ritual, they were scheduled to perform aboard one of those gambling rafts, traipsing up the river to where else but Clydesdale.
6: They offered us a lift if we'd help them pack up their tom-toms, so we made a few quick trips back and forth to the minivan, and off we went to the... Casino port.
7: Once the boat got underway, I bought myself a bucket of sausage coins and took a seat on the observation deck. It was a still night, and I call me freakish, but I could feel the eyes of the river creatures watching me from the banks.
6: The humidity devastated my hair, so I went down below deck where they keep... Well, that's where they keep the big cats. Show cats. I stood up close to the bars where I could feel the Ocelot's breath against my face. It was hypnotic, is what it was.
7: We were each lost in our own separate reveries when... The big clock struck, and the gambling raft pulled into Port Kimberley to stock up on poker chips. The captain said we'd be docked for an hour or more, but with this human heart, we just couldn't wait that long.
6: We jumped ship and rented a car. Traffic was unusually heavy for a Sunday night at 3 a.m., so I let him do the driving.
7: I was making decent time, until a cola tanker swerved into the opposite lane and...
6: Dear God, what a mess. Those who weren't maimed or crippled rushed from their cars with cans and paper cups, trying to scoop up as much free cola as possible. The
7: tanker driver opened fire on the crowd and a few people shot back. Next thing you know, all hell broke loose. The riot police, the National Guard, two or three dozen private militias, they were all over the place. We
6: left the rental car and fled through a pasture toward a neighboring barn. My
7: idea because I like barns. I'm a barn person.
6: And I can't stand the damn things, because I'm not a barn person. Straw makes me anxious, and I was nervous enough having dodged all that gunfire. (laughs)
7: We were all pretty shaken up. Linda, myself, and this human heart we were carrying.
6: I put my ear to the side of the pail and heard nothing. I figured that after everything it had been through, the poor thing had suffered a heart attack.
7: It was alive, but weak. I tried frightening it to get the heart beat up. Yeah. Yeah. And that seemed to work.
6: Once he stopped screaming, I heard in the distance the sound of... Power tools. It was coming from a shed beside the farmhouse. Hello? We're here in the barn with a human heart.
7: It was a farmer building an an aviary
6: that's a place where birds are kept
7: he had these birds just roaming freely through the house and i sat back for a moment before i thought birds birds fly not bad huh
6: Oh, it was brilliant, is what it was. We tied the human heart to the foot of a carrier pigeon, taped the address to its beak, and sent it on its way. Fly away, little pigeon. Fly away to Clydesdale Memorial Hospital. Ah!
7: And I guess she found her way, because two days later we received our tickets, just as promised. Front
6: row seats to the matinee performance of Sublet, The hottest
7: show in town.
6: Afterwards, we tucked the playbills into my purse, and just like always, we hailed a handsome cab. <laughs>
7: oh. Oh. No, a handsome cab.
6: No, a handsome cab. That's it. We settled into the back seat and trotted off with our memories until that bearded coot knocked on the door carrying a lung in a saucepan.
0: The Heart of Times Square by David Sedaris, performed by Toby Wherry and Penelope Boyer.
4: All right, let's sing about the bread man together, shall we? Good. Here's the song about our friend the bread man. He drives a big white wagon when he comes. When he comes. Oh, he drives a big white wagon when he comes. When he comes. He's comes. he got bread and cakes and cookies. He's got bread and cakes and cookies. He'll be bringing good things to eat when he comes. Oh, the
0: bread man... Act four. Check out the package on that guy. A not terribly recent article of the Wall Street Journal asserts that an inordinate number of women have fantasies about their UPS delivery man. Their continual efforts to put out calendars with names like Buns of UPS. It's part of UPS's marketing campaign. There's a UPS commercial that shows women swooning over their UPS guy. One reporter actually called five therapists, four had clients, who fantasized about UPS men. So, are UPS fans actually rolling dens of iniquity? Do the drivers actually get play out of this? T.A.L. See, that's what, we call it around the, that's what we call it around the office. This American Life. This American Life producer, Nancy Updike, went outside UPS to find out.
3: It turns out that asking UPS drivers whether they have sex on their route is pretty much like asking any other group of mostly straight men about sex. Very quickly, you find yourself talking about an elevator, a mirror, or a nymphomaniac.
8: A girl in a company that was moving I obviously had the hats for this gentleman and I confronted him in the elevator. And told the gentleman. In the morning, she would get up. She would have a blanket in front of her, but she would have a one of those mirror doors right behind her, and you could see nothing but her rear. End. I mean, every well, this time. This gentleman that I know, I'm going to not say names, but he had a building route, and there was a uh, nymphomaniac in the building, and uh, she'd come down and. So I talked cage, to 15 you know. men
3: in two hours as they were leaving their UPS jobs at the end of the day. Some were funny, some were hot, some were stupid. The majority were in their late 20s or their 30s, mostly black, and I believe I now have the empirical evidence necessary to put everyone's mind at rest here. UPS livery guys, as a group, are not having more sex than you are. Here's how I know. When you ask them what sexual experiences they have personally had while on the job, you instantly get into really boring territory.
8: Before I got married, there was a uh, there was a situation where uh, I had light conversation with a woman, and it was just, just clicking very well. And uh, you know, it was uh, it almost happened. I guess so, you know the the vibes were there, everything was right, but uh, nothing happened. So nothing but, uh, happened. You know. Let's try another guy. No, I had one uh, close encounter. I delivered a package to a place in Dearborn Park here, and uh, it was in the morning. Around 10, 11 o'clock, and a girl came down. A woman, or I, I don't know. She looked in her 20s. So came down in her lingerie, and she answered the door.
3: She's in her lingerie, at the door. What happens?
8: I kind of rolled my eyes. Gave her the package. I had to go. <laughs> I couldn't. Stand he had anymore. to go. How about this guy?
3: What's the most outrageous proposition you ever had? Can I
8: come back after work, you know, and make love to him?
3: Did you ever do it? No. They don't do it. Not at work. Of 15 guys, not one believably told me about a sexual encounter he had on the job. And they restrain themselves for the exact same boring reasons you do. They don't want to lose their job. They're married. We usually don't have time to, you know, the, you know as far as that goes.
4: We just don't have time.
3: Just don't have time until <laughs> so I'm in a rush. A few guys said they'd heard of other guys having sex on their roots. And weirdly, the setting for these events was always the same.
4: He, uh, you know, invited her on the truck. She got in
3: the truck with him.
4: In the back of the package In of the back of, and, of the truck.
3: And they had sex. Had the
4: wild thing going back there. On the shelf.
3: On the shelf. Which brings me to a question. Who are all these people that other people know who like having sex in these places that sound so uncomfortable?
8: I, I imagine a lot of women would like to see the inside of a package car, you know. I've heard drivers say, let's just throw some envelopes down here on the floor and, you know, we can, uh, you know.
3: How come it always happens in the van? I've never heard people, like, I don't know. It's where the guy mono. comes into the house. It's always the woman going into the van.
8: I don't know. You're not... When you go into a building, I, I do not like going into a building because you never know what situation you're going to run into. It could be a crazy old lady who says next thing you know something's missing from the apartment. It could be some frustrated woman. You could walk in to her apartment and she says, she could say you tried making advances at her. That sexual harassment, you're out of a job. You don't want to be in that situation. The union cannot do anything for you to back you up. You know, if it's a... I mean, to to climb into a vehicle, that's definitely consensual.
3: The bottom line about the whole UPS-sex connection, what actually happens to real people, and this is going to blow your mind, is that sometimes women ask their UPS man out on a date. And off hours, let's have lunch, let's have dinner, regular kind of date, just like you and me. And aside from that with very few exceptions i believe it is all simply
8: lies oh yeah they come to the door they all like the just time Just has got out, out get the shower had a they had a gown you know out. gown on yeah. and then it just opened up like oops <laughs> yeah.
3: this has happened to you oh yeah
8: you might come you know you might get out the shower and you know uh-huh. you, sometimes you might
3: you, have a towel oh, yeah, right right and and you it give her the drop, package, right, and, the package right. and the towel falls right. that has happened to you personally oh yeah a
8: lot time with my girl i it well drum for my woman, the girls, they love
2: to see you shoot. I love a man in a uniform, I love a man in a
4: uniform, I love a man you a uniform. I've got a guy, I've got a guy, and ooh, I love that man, yeah. He makes love to me, he makes love to me like no one else can I've got a guy who's really on the beam I've got a guy who's really on the beam He looks at me and makes me want to scream Oh, does he send me? Yes, he does Does he send me? Yes, he does He sends me, yeah
0: Our program was produced today by Elise Spiegel and myself, contributing editors Sarah Val, Paul Tuff, Jack and Margie Rockland. Special thanks today to Christina Stevens, John Connors, Sappy, Chris Legan, and David Greenfield. Funding for This American Life has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who cannot wait for the pledge drive so he can get on the radio and say to you... To show us where the silver's at. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life, where our motto is...
6: Hello! We're here in the barn with a human heart. (laughs) ¶¶